Welcome back to the Non-Exodent Novel Review. I'm author Matthew Glasgow. For this episode, we will review and discuss chapter 13 of the novel. This chapter also takes place over a day, the day of the Shamrock Shuttle for St. Patrick's Day. An obvious intention is to first illustrate how drastically things can change, from where we saw the St. Patrick, Patricius character earlier, to this massively overindulgent celebration in his name so many years later. Beyond the thematic connection to other chapters, I thought of the nature of a party in general. Dempsey and his friends are in the midst of all of these crowded bars and buses, surrounded by each other and many others, yet the phenomenon of being in this shared space and feeling so alone. Under all of this partying and excess, One of my intentions was to show the sadness in these characters. Burke understands how he is judged as a person squandering his potential, yet moves himself more parallel with his father, though there are uh, unrealized thoughts of resentment with his father. McNamara is processing his near-death experience and using it as some sort of sign that he is destined to do something great with his life. Still, he lacks the true charisma to succeed as some type of solo musician. Sheridan finds near-immediate success in everything he delves into, and as such is frequently bored and unchallenged. Even his role and presence with these friends is uninteresting to him, and he is questioning why he remains with them at all. Dempsey, however, is riding a wave of success early in the chapter. He's doing fine with women loves being with his friends, and appears content with his drinking habits. However, as the night wanes, the shallow nature of his success starts to creep into his consciousness. The narrative point of view shifts to an otherwise stranger of a character, Fauna. I felt it necessary to drift from the perspectives of Dempsey and his friends, as she otherwise would have been portrayed as another random hookup for Dempsey another conquest, another notch on his belt. I have Fauna acknowledge as much, which made me see her as such a tragic character. She has had a terrible existence, been labeled loose and unworthy of love, beyond the brief and physical, and trapped in this loop, she understands she cannot escape. I saw Dempsey not seeing or caring much about Fauna's perspective, So I felt it was important to shift focus to hers and not his until after he leaves and is back walking home alone. There has been a pattern emerging, hopefully, at least with these chapters where Dempsey is out and about partying. The chapters begin with tremendous hope, euphoria, even for the eventual fun times to come. However, whatever fun disintegrates by the end of the chapter, Now to the point that Dempsey is all alone, sees his city as ugly and dead as a tomb, and contemplates leaving it. Layers of myth are being shed for Dempsey, and notions of perpetual pride in your town and loyalty to friends in all situations are beginning to emerge as he trudges through the industrial wasteland all alone. Inspiration. I would say in this chapter, Connor Dempsey and the narrative is at its most picturesque. 
in a short time, he goes from being on a bus with his friends, then this phenomenon of being swept with the night and his drunkenness until he meets Fauna at a dive bar. From there, inhibitions are gone, but the good time is thwarted by the reality of Fauna's broken existence. This chapter was a chance for me to explore the minds of Dempsey and his friends, shifting to their points of view throughout the day. Fauna does not reappear in the novel, but I found it valuable to see her perspective as well. From Connor's point of view, Fauna is just a means of sexual gratification and likely another story, another anecdote for his legend. In essence, Dempsey, at this stage in his life, does not want anything too meaningful, just drinking, women, and friends. He has the big dreams too, but again, has no real plan to achieve it. His life is fantasy, myth. However, Fauna represents that reality. Even if a person like Dempsey could complain about his life, Fauna's perspective and what happens that night hopefully illustrates how bad, how desperate things can be. My main message, essentially, is beginning at the party, and by the end, it is clear the party is over. It is subtle, but I think this is a moment of growth for Dempsey. I'm not anti-fun, but I think this chapter illustrates that uh, just wanting to have a good time has its downside. In my mind, I was likely thinking of The Sun Also Rises, and a similar arc of following a character through a course of frivolous behavior and in, in um, inebriation to a conclusion that is more serious and sober. Craft and Structure this chapter features multiple perspectives and stream-of-consciousness writing, with essentially every character involved. I wanted to illustrate the irony of being in a crowded, fun situation and contrasting that with characters who feel very isolated and uh, are having moments of doubt and crisis. This chapter also represents one of Dempsey's last real moments of youthfulness, as we'll see changes occur in the character in upcoming characters and upcoming chapters. Chapter 13. Dempsey rode in the back of the school bus that, on this Saturday, contained drunken adults in green t-shirts, temporary shamrock tattoos on their faces, Irish flag suspenders, and tweed Jeff caps, as opposed to children. It was the shamrock shuttle for St. Patrick's Day, and the bus was on its own transportation service to local Northeast Philadelphia bars for a mere $5.00. It was also a great opportunity to drink without being carded, as the bars in Holmesburg and Mayfair were swept up in the madness of hordes of people drunkenly celebrating their Irish heritage, or at least pretending to be for the day. Dempsey thought about his own Irish roots, which really didn't extend too far beyond his grandmother, watching the Notre Dame fighting Irish whenever they were on, listening to Perry Como sing when Irish eyes are smiling, or correcting people who said St. Paddy's Day to respecting the name of St. Patrick. Dempsey wished for something a little deeper than that, some family tree that extended to the earliest clans, but it was all nebulous as far as he knew. Besides not having any deeper meaning, this was truly a good day. Burke sat in front of him in the bus, banging on the seat to some rhythm he had in his head and sipping from his dad's flask. McNamara was across the aisle, staring out the window. They began the day at Burke's parents' house at 8 a.m. with kegs and eggs, where Burke invited about 20 other friends and served scrambled eggs and hash browns along with some natty ice. 
By 11, they made their way to Attawak Jacks, played some shuffleboard and darts, and Dempsey got with some random blonde who sidled up next to him while he was ordering a drink, rubbed his chest, and then stuck her tongue down his throat. He had hopes of seeing her again at some point during the bar tour, but if he didn't, he was pretty sure another girl would come along. That had been the norm nearly every night out now. One or two actions, a dance or a compliment, and he was making out or getting laid. He could do nothing but smile the whole time, just riding this awesome wave of drinking and women. The bus stopped at Cotman and Frankfurt in Mayfair, and they first went to Reels. The DJ was blasting music, and the bar was wall-to-wall sea of green. Dempsey squirmed his way to a bartender, got a miller, and joined his friends outside. He found himself fixated on McNamara, who was smoking a cigarette and generally not saying much today. McNamara caught Dempsey's gaze in return. Dempsey thought of how lucky that bastard was to have him as a friend, to have his life saved. McNamara was not breathing, his mouth just agape with no air coming out. Eyes rolled in the back of his head. Did he really know how close he was to being dead? And McNamara thinking of that night and having such devastation over his lack of memory. To be told, hey, you could have died, and not knowing anything about it was frightening. He just woke up the next day, saw vomit on his shirt and on the ground, and realized he was five minutes late for his world religions exam, took the multiple choice, handed it to the professor, went into the bathroom and vomited, and then came back and completed his written responses. Like a jigsaw puzzle, finding clues from the night, an empty bladder of boxed wine, an empty bottle of Captain Morgan and slugging the bottle down as if it were a beer, getting in some type of fight, talking about ghosts, and nearly dying. It had scarred him, certainly, but also instilled in him a greater resolve, a greater belief that he, McNamara, was here for some greater purpose. He had survived a night wandering the slums with a guitar on his back. He had survived a pouncing by a horde of 25-year-olds after mouthing off in a bar in Conshohocken. His vision was so damn bright. He saw the the songs about to be written. He saw a marriage and kids to Sarah Raleigh. He was a child of destiny, a great dark horse who would ascend above it all. It was in this rapture that he loved Dempsey, but there was no way he could express it properly. No precedent to walk over, kiss him on the cheek, thank him, and truly share his gratitude. Before he, before he was truly out of his haze, Burke tapped him on the shoulder and directed him to Harrington's down the block. It was a, an unseasonably warm mid-March day and Burke was thrilled to be part of it all. McNamara followed him faithfully and began talking about a newly discovered Cat Stevens song he had found. It was a fun pastime talking to McNamara about this or that hidden artist or band. He would bring up an obscure T-Rex tune, McNamara would counter with Panic in Detroit from Diamond Dogs, and so on. McNamara had the talent. He played guitar and produced these riffs and chord progressions that could be songs on the radio but somehow felt to Burke like the follower, Burke's toady. He had the chops. Burke was just an underachiever with a set of ears. This seemed most apparent in McNamara's smoking and drinking habits now. McNamara was a kid who couldn't touch liquor in high school, and now he was almost drinking himself to death. He was a kid who would busboy on weekends and get up early on Saturdays for a run through Pennypack Park. Now he was smoking a pack a day and sleeping in until noon most days. Burke felt himself as the great corrupter in a way. They were all going down and they were following his lead. He, a twisted shepherd who took his flock into the depths of the valley, where his staff and his legs were strong enough to take them to the highest peaks, 
to fear no predator and live in peace. Ah, but to lead, you must be more protector than hunter. Yes, you must know how the stalker thinks and when it will strike, but you must be fully resolved to step in front of the weakest of the flock when the beast emerges from the darkness with its ravenous jaws and jagged teeth with saliva frothing and spilling onto the earth. He was not that, lead, not that leader yet, but his flock was ready to believe when he opened his mouth and pointed his finger and jutted out his chest that real fury would follow. But as of now, it had not. He gave only weak punches that were swallowed by opponents and then laughed at and pummeled and returned. Like a recurring nightmare of swinging fists with maximum force, only to have it slowed as if punching through a blob of hard gelatin. And when the punch finally makes its way through, it barely grazes the combatant. And the combatant, always faceless, simply walks away. Somewhere in him was that chubby, straight-A student, 8th grader. The one who stayed after school to work one out algebraic component and complete equation in math club. The one who had an article in the Northeast Times about his scholarship and his buddies, teasing him about his awkward smile while holding the check and the Wizard of Winchester Park and the Wizard of Winchester Park article headline above his head, and everyone calling him Wiz until his eighth grade graduation from St. Jerome's. The one who seemed to hit puberty a click later than the other boys and entered Father Judge with his cherubic face and buzz cut, while everyone else had at least a peach fuzz mustache. And then his dad got the pair of boxing gloves that they used to mess around with when he was in first or second grade and said, now I'm going to teach you for real. And they'd spar in the backyard and watch Tyson or Lennox Lewis on the pay-per-view or old Mickey Ward fights because he was white and a scrappier fighter than all the rest. And that's like you. You won't have the lunking muscle, but you'll have the heart. And as long as you stand your ground and never be afraid of the opponent, you'll win. And then his dad would have a beer before work at the steam fitters, and then he would come home later and miss dinner and say he had overtime, which was partially true, but partially he was drinking with his crew after the shift. Or when Burke was a sophomore, his dad would reveal that sometimes it would be the titty bar, but don't tell your mom. And a little later that year, because he was so loaded, he forgot where he parked his car and his dad and his buddies downstairs for poker night. And then his dad getting a DUI after a beef and beer for an old high school friend's and somewhere in there, Burke stopped caring as much in school because his dad seemed happy enough and never really got too overjoyed at his grades anyway. And his dad saying half of it was bullshit that they taught him in there. And Burke appalled that his dad had waited so long to tell him that. And then they started drinking together on the back porch. And his dad lit a cigarette and Burke with his jaw on the floor because his dad didn't smoke. And his dad saying he had quit the day he was born. But now I'm almost 50 and you're almost out of the house and fuck it. We don't live forever anyway. And then one day in late August, his dad helped him move into the dorm and slipping him a sticky note with an address and saying, you'll be getting beer anyway. I figured that is better than asking some North Philly bum. And a week later, Burke, McNamara, Dempsey and Sheridan, each posing for their fake IDs and each of his buddies saying his dad was the greatest. It may have been better to let it all crumble away and see what remained. It may have been better to be that fake name, Eric Floyd, on the ID, who lived on the made-up street in a made-up town, well, not that made-up, but far enough away from this life. Better than to be stuck between the boy who had the bright future, who was squandering his talent with each waking day, not nose-deep in a book, and then Burke, who realized finally one day that he was Burke, and his dad was so cool, and he was cool with letting his talent float away. 
and people saw his long hair and classic rock t-shirt and cigarette hanging from his lip and had him figured out. So you might as well get wasted and listen to good music and exhale the cigarette for a moment too long because that tension is leaving your body. And if someone says something to you or looks at you funny, just punch them in the face because one day it'll all come crashing down on you anyway. And you'll probably be alone, but today your boys are with you and they have your back and they want you to take them to high places. But if you fall off the cliff, they'll be there too and not say a word because you have some charisma and people think you're funny and even repeat your expressions. And so they were in Harrington's and Sheridan bought a round of Jameson and they all slugged it down. Oh, and Sheridan, that magnificent man, the embodiment of what they all combined could be. Statuesque and handsome, like a Ralph Lauren model, with not a single hair out of place, bluntly refusing to grow his hair just because now he finally could. He, with the flittering obsessions that seemed to run away with the reasons. Adroit in it all, it seemed. Music, art, literature, and mathematics. He especially scoffed at all the tales of drunken brawls at temple frat houses for he could perform a single jujitsu submission hold, and even a D1 athlete would be gasping for air like a minnow on the dock, not even worthy enough to be used for crab traps at the bottom of the ocean. He remained steely as much as possible, but the early drinking had started to loosen the bolts of his otherwise titanium silo of a human persona. And it was becoming more evident in his mind that it was such a persona. He was marveled at by women here at Harrington's. Even three big-breasted girls in white, green, and orange tank tops could not take their eyes off of him. And he had his share in his short life, but it was a facade. Not gay, but sexually ambivalent, as he seemed to be. Ambivalent, that is, about most things. Maybe it was the instant precision, that lack of a struggle that made it all interesting. Why obsess over women or sex when it was so automatic? Why play music forever once you get the gist of it? When you reach mastery and you'd rather not spend your weekends like these pathetic dipshits playing whiskey in the jar in a fake Irish accent to a crowd that's not even listening to you. He almost felt that way about drinking and to an extent hanging out with his friends in general. The effect of drinking was fine and he liked it when it made him feel mellow, but the taste was nearly painful and most drinks taste like chilled stale piss. So to counter this apathy, he'd order the shots early in the night, or day in this instant, because there was at least more spectacle to it. More tension in seeing the glasses lined up, let the people either grimace and suck in air and make their cheeks all puffy in excitement in anticipation of the intense kick of the hard liquor and the spiral into drunken badness that would follow. He, of course, also appreciated this immediate high, this act of being known as the partier or wild man, also suited his lack of real connection with these friends. In all the years they had known each other, he could only count a handful of meaningful conversations he had had with them. They'd talk, and he'd be two steps ahead of them, and he'd grow bored, or he'd bring up a topic out of their range of comprehension and easily give up. It was better to yell things out of a window or hoot and clap his hands and shake his fist to a song and spot some chicks than to drop this whole thing and just go home and focus on the next project. After a while at Harrington's, the four grew tired of the constant pushing and shoving that comes with a large crowd, especially a crowd that grew more sloppy and belligerent by the minute. So they ventured down Frankfurt Avenue, a few blocks to Tom's Sportsman Pub, a place out of the way and lowly enough to surely not be crowded. As he left the dim bar room of Harrington's, 
Dempsey felt disoriented by the bright sun and realized it was only 2 p.m. Masses of green plodded up and down the streets of Mayfair, filling the air with drunken slurs and empty threats and laughter as, the, as school bus after school bus drove by with even more shouting and hollering. Dempsey was in the stage of drunkenness where he would be highly irritable. He wanted to turn and set straight any buffoon who would stumble into him or turn his shoulder, but he fought the urge and kept walking. Too much trouble lately. Too much finger-wagging by his mom and dad as he stumbled in late or showed up with a welt on his face from a fight, or the girls who scurried out of his room and out the back door as his parents arose. His fantasy returned to his mind. He and his three boys living in a house together, drinking nearly every night and doing as they please. This, the realistic fantasy. Studying for nursing school and then becoming a nurse and making decent money and not really worrying about anything else. Yet he also had this grandiose fantasy of some fame or riches and renown and having a lovely wife, or even he and his boys in some mansion of a house and the money just coming in and no one worrying about work or anything of this sort. Just a fantastic dream with no real means of achieving it. Some wild scenario, a magic lamp with a million wishes. They arrived at Tom's Sportsman's and began playing darts. Dempsey played Sheridan while Burke and McNamara smoked outside. Sheridan, of course, was skilled at darts as well and was a challenging opponent for Dempsey, who was a decent player himself. Playing cricket, Dempsey was reliable to hit at least one number between 15 and 20 on one of his throws, mainly single scores, whereas Sheridan would hit doubles or triples and take an early lead. Sheridan was a pitcher in high school and his precision showed at this game. However, with the early lead, Dempsey eventually caught up and the two were tied with only bullseye left. This was the great equalizer. Even a precise thrower like Sheridan fell to its torments, forcing him to hold the dart slightly differently each time, adjusting his stance and arching his elbow. Dempsey hit the green circle for one, Sheridan followed with one of his own. Then each fell into a dry spell of about eight throws until Sheridan, on a rope, threw straight into the red eye of the board and won. Dempsey bought him a beer. She felt the layer of makeup on her face, worried it was dissolving with the sweat of the day. She was now at her fifth bar of the afternoon. It was a fun enough day to start, but her friend Rebecca bumped into her old friend Dave, a loser wannabe pot dealer, and they went back to his apartment to fuck. Anne stayed around for a little while, and then she started to dance with some guy in a kiss-me-um-shit-faced t-shirt and polo hat, and she was gone, too. Jane was still with her here at Tom's, but she was a lightweight going in and out of consciousness next to her at the bar. Even she was getting hit on with her eyes barely open. She just wasn't as pretty as her friends, Fauna surmised. She was pretty enough as a little girl with pigtails and gingham dresses, And every Sunday, her mom and dad would go to church at St. Timothy's and then have breakfast at the Mayfair Diner. And her dad, even though he was a gruff six-foot-four construction worker, would play Barbies with her and put that little doll in her pink convertible and say in his best feminine voice, let's go shopping, and put a little sun hat on her and even comb her hair. Then one night, when he was working on repaving a stretch of I-95, a drunk driver clipped him and his body went flying into a concrete barrier, and he was dead. He was so big and tough, she never thought in a million years he had the capability of dying. And then, about four years later, 
her mother remarried to Joe, who had two older boys, Ron and Eric, and then moved into a three-bedroom row home in Taconi, where he and her mom would never be home at nights, as Joe was a truck driver for Tasty Cake, and her mom was a nurse at Nazareth Hospital. So Ron and Eric would get fucked up on beer or weed, or sometimes pills, and have their scummy friends over, and those friends would always hit on her, and one groped her when she was 13, and they were 16 to 18. And even Ron tried some shit on her one time. But they were always around, and eventually she started fucking their friends, and it made her feel like a grown woman, and a woman who was wanted. But then she really started partying with them, and she started to gain weight and get acne, and those friends didn't seem to care as much about her. And they would still fuck her, but they didn't make any overtures or try to sweet-talk her. And they would just take her upstairs and do what they had to do. Then she would stare in the mirror for hours and wonder why God was so cruel to plague her face with these oily red and white pustules. And she'd have to strategically place the right hues of makeup on her cheeks and nose and forehead and try to not look like some clown putting paint on bumps and everyone thinking she was trashy and just a whore who wanted it. And she was, but so was everyone else. But those girls could just sit there and wait for those dogs with their tongues wagging to approach them and try to spit game and suddenly become hack poets. And then if they said yes, they could just lie there and let the dogs do all the work. Whereas she would have to do the work and do the dirty and memorable things to make up for this makeup whore. And then they still wouldn't even call her back. So here she was at this shitty bar. And there were some old fogies, but also a group of four young guys. Probably not even old enough to be here. And probably at least one of them would want to jump onto her like a rabbit and then hop away and put another notch on his rabbit belt. And that rabbit ended up being Dempsey. And they did it in the alley behind Tom's, like stray cats. And she took him into her house in Taconi, and they did it again. And he hung around and had some beers with her. And she at least felt temporarily wanted. But then her stepbrother Ron came home drunk from the Shamrock shuttle and started to give Dempsey some shit until Fauna interceded and ran up to her room with Dempsey. And him sitting on the mattress on the floor and thinking how bare it all was. Just a bed and a mirror and a few photo booth pictures from some wedding she attended. And they were about to hook up again when she heard a loud bang on the door. And they watched from her window as Ron stepped outside and began yelling and pointing his finger at two guys in their mid-twenties. And the guys kept barking, where's our money? And then the one guy grabbed Ron by the collar and headbutted him. And Ron collapsed into the sidewalk. And the guys rummaged through his pockets and finding nothing, stormed into the house. Fauna suddenly gained courage and slammed down her, slammed open her door, half-clothed, and rushed down the stairs to confront the two intruders. Get out of my fucking house, scumbags. Leave my family alone, Fauna screamed into the living room. Ronnie owes us four grand. Reno ain't giving him any more chances. Well, he don't have it. Get the fuck out. The one with the goatee then took out a knife. You better give us every dime in this house or this is the last time you see your brother or your boyfriend here alive. Fucking scum, I have 200 bucks in my room. Jewelry too, sweet fauna. Fuck you. As she went up for the money, he pointed the knife towards Dempsey, and Dempsey gave him the $50 in his wallet. Dempsey walked home through the Taconi Industrial Park warehouse. Warehouse after abandoned warehouse, crumbling sidewalks and driveways sandwiched between I-95 and the Delaware River. The Taconi-Palmyra drawbridge was up. As a cargo ship passed through and the cars were temporarily trapped in Philadelphia. For as far as he could see, it was nothing but rubble, a dream lost and fading with each day. 
Ghosts in a tomb world with no foreseeable way out. The liberty was a lie. Brotherly love was some obscene joke. All he thought about was making his way home and to leave as soon as possible. It was night and the party was over. And so Fauna sat in the living room with her stepbrother, who was holding a package of frozen spinach to his jaw and speaking only in epithet and obscenities. And she knew she would never see that handsome, curly, blonde-haired boy again. Then she'd just be another story he'd, he'd tell his boys about, and he'd describe tonight, and it would probably be the most exciting thing to ever happen to him. But this was her life, and he'd just go back to college on Monday and think about the white trash girl in the white trash house. And he'd ace his exams and have some model life. And she'd always be in some dingy bar drinking on a random Tuesday because she'd never have some 9-to-5 Monday-to-Friday job and the department store or restaurant only told her days two, two days in advance. And her weekends would be days when no one else would have off or feel like having a few drinks. So she'd just fall into degenerates like Ron, and she'd probably get her knocked up at some point to one of those losers. And she'd keep spinning and spinning until the day she'd say she'd had enough and find the college applications. But she'd look at her high school transcripts and GPAs and get discouraged and lose that thought for a while. And then she'd see the hours needed for a degree and the price, and she'd say no again. And then one day she'd work her way all the way up to the admittance essay. And she'd cry at her desk because she could not think of one positive trait about herself. And she'd slam her laptop shut and never think of it again as a reality. And she'd just go up into her room and stare at the phone until the pill Ron gave her set in. And she shut her eyes to go to sleep. That will do it for this episode. Thank you for listening and your continued support. Please make sure to follow on social media and check out Amazon for reading options for this novel and other novels to come. Until next time.